0: the things that we've done, Lord, we praise you for that. Lord, I pray for those in this room, um, as there may be, I know there's always the possibility, those here who do not know you, Lord, I pray that your spirit be moving in their hearts, Lord. We know that the spirit can only prompt them towards you, Lord. And so we pray for that right now. Lord, I pray that today would be the day that Jesus became real to them. That Jesus became their Savior and their Lord and their King. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You guys can have a seat. All right, so there's a Christian humorist, and his name is Dennis Swanberg, and he loves to tell this story about an unforgettable baptism that happened in this small Texas church. You see, they were building this brand new building, and, and it was almost complete, but not quite, and they were excited to use it, and they had a baptism coming up. And the baptismal, you know, it was fully functional— And, uh, but they didn't have any changing rooms yet. So they decided, we'll just hang some sheets up around the baptismal, you know, to, that, that the people can change, you know, the girls can change on this side, and the guys can change on this side, and then they'll come out, and they'll go into the baptismal, we'll baptize them, and then they can go back out, and they can go back and change, right? So, Um, the the baptism was going great, and then there was this woman to be baptized, and she she was deathly afraid of water. I mean, maybe you're afraid of water, and you know what it kind of feels like to go in water. She was deathly afraid of water, but he had assured her that everything would be okay. You know, you can't drown in a baptismal. It's going to be fine, and so she's on her way down into the baptismal, taking the steps, and he is helping her, and she kind of slips a little bit, and she loses her balance, and she freaks out, and she doesn't know exactly what to do, so she does what any person would do who's starting to fall down, she grabs for anything she can to hold herself up, and she grabs one of the sheets that they were using for the changing room, and she pulls it down. And there's this audible gasp in the sanctuary. And there's this gentleman who was changing, standing only in his underwear and does what any man would do when he hears a noise. He turns and he sees, jaws open wide, and he does the only thing that any, you know, reasonable person would do to to hide themselves. He dives into the baptismal (laughs) with the woman and the pastor. And Dennis likes to say at the end of this thing, they just dismissed the service at that time. <laughs> now, the reason I tell you this story is we're in chapter 10, Daniel chapter 10, and I've been wrestling with this this week and with all of the content that is in there, and what we see in Daniel chapter 10 is it's like we see the sheet dropped. It's like we see something that we've never been privileged to see before. We get to see a glimpse into the heavens in this vision that Daniel is given. Now, the unfortunate thing about this morning, as I introduce it this way, is we're not going to talk about that today. When I got finished with the message yesterday, it, was, it had to be an hour long. And I'm thinking, we have communion and I don't want to do what sometimes happens. The preacher goes long and we like have two minutes for communion and everybody feels rushed and we're not going to do that today. So what I've done this week is I've split the sermon in half. I'm going to do point number one this morning and then we're going to do point number two next week. Point number two deals with prayer and and we see a visible illustration of prayer in this in, in how Daniel does and the effects of prayer, the supernatural Um, connection between our human reality and the spiritual world. It is amazing when you read the details of Daniel chapter 10 to think about. But what I want to focus on this morning is the first few verses of Daniel chapter 10. It's point number one in your sermon notes. And if you have turned there already, if you haven't, please do. Daniel chapter 10. Let's read verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia... A revelation was given to Daniel, who was called Belteshazzar. Its message was true, and it concerned a great war. The understanding of the message came to him in a vision. Now, Daniel is about 80 years old. He's in his 80s by now. Um, and and he may be living the retired life from government work. He may not be. I We don't know this for sure. But but at whatever stage in life he's in, we know that he continues to keep his focus on the kingdom of God. Um, He engages in what God has in mind for him. He's still very sensitive to spiritual things. I mean, we're going to see it today. And and this final vision, um, over the next two weeks, we're going to look at Again, as I said, prayer in more detail next week and and probably some more details of chapter 11. But this morning, um, I want to talk about Jesus. I want to talk about Jesus this morning. Look at verses 2 through 3 with me. At that time, I, Daniel, mourned for three weeks. I ate no choice food, no meat or wine touched my lips, and I used no lotions at all, until the three weeks were over. Now, some of you know what it would be like if you didn't use lotion for three weeks. Um, I envision just him not bathing. Not, I mean, he is, he is in a complete state of a, not a total fast. It seems like a partial fast because they only mention meat and, and wine. But something is weighing really heavy on Daniel. I mean, his heart is burdened to the core and, and he is crying out to God in this period of time. On the 24th day of the first month, it says, As I was standing on the bank of the great river, the Tigris, I looked up and there before me was a man dressed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz around his waist. His body was like topaz, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze and his voice like the sound of a multitude. I, Daniel, was the only one who saw the vision. Those who were with me did not see it, but such terror overwhelmed them that they fled and hid themselves. So I was left alone, gazing at this great vision. I had no strength left. My face turned deathly pale, and I was helpless. Then I heard him speaking, and as I listened to him, I fell into a deep sleep, my face to the ground. Have you... I wonder if any of us have ever been in or experienced the presence of God in such a way that we've taken that physical posture that Daniel took here. I mean, he is moved to the point of, of almost death. He, it says he falls into a deep sleep. Now, who do you think he is seeing in this vision right here in this moment? I, I think he's seeing Jesus. And we're going to look at why I think that. Uh, he's seeing, he's experiencing the majesty of Jesus in this moment, in this vision. Now, many biblical scholars agree that this is a pre-incarnate vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've talked about it before in other passages where where Jesus, before he comes incarnate as a man, shows up on the scene. we, We have illustrations of this happening in the Old Testament. Now, the point of prophecy seems to me to be to point us to Jesus. Prophecy, point us to Jesus, point us to Jesus. Even if it's kind of vaguely pointing us to the end of the world, to the very end, what really matters in the end? Jesus. Now there are people who are prophecy junkies that read the Bible to try and find out details of the future so that they can create a new chart or some new end time schedule of how it's all going to happen, but I think they, they really miss the point. We've seen that God isn't about those details, haven't we? What we've seen is God reassuring us that in the end it's going to happen and it's going to happen in similar ways to this. But just like he says, um, nobody knows the time or the hour. Think about the last book of the Bible. What is it? What, what, it's, it's what? What, what is the, the real title of that book? The revelation of Jesus Christ. It says that in Revelation 1.1. The revelation from Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. That's the point of prophecy. Jesus Christ. We've seen Jesus before in Daniel, haven't we? In Daniel chapter 2, Jesus was the stone not cut by human hands that crushed the kingdoms of this world. In chapter 7, Jesus was called the Son of Man who is given an everlasting kingdom. In chapter 8, he is called the Prince of Princes who comes to defeat the Antichrist. And in chapter 4, it's very possible that Daniel writes about that fourth man who was walking in the fire with his three Hebrew friends was Jesus. Jesus is the scarlet thread throughout the entire Bible, even in the Old Testament. He is found from the beginning to the very end. From Genesis 1 1 to Revelation 22 21, and on every page in between. And if we ever read our Bibles and we don't see Jesus on a page, I don't think we're looking hard enough. Because he's there. It's all about Him. It's all about God working out His plan of redemption throughout the history of the world, and Jesus is that man. Jesus is the Redeemer. He is amazing. He is powerful. He is majestic. And this last vision that Daniel is seeing is majestic in all of its description. In fact, there are things that he describes that he doesn't even seem to have words to describe. Now, imagine yourself standing on the bank of the North Platte. Now, I don't know how big the Tigris River is. Uh, It's probably much bigger than the North Platte, even at, you know, um, silt run depths. But imagine yourself standing there in an an exceptionally picturesque place. You know, you're just you're just in touch with your surroundings. You, you, hear, you hear the birds and you hear the crickets this time of year and, and maybe the sun is setting and the, the sh- it's shimmering orange and purple off the clouds like it was a couple nights ago. And you're just thinking about your creator and all of a sudden, before you, stands what Daniel describes here. What would you do? What, what do you think you would do? Um, David Dykes writes this. He says, This picture of the glorified, majestic Jesus was the same that the three disciples saw on the Mount of Transfiguration. It was strikingly similar to what Saul of Tarsus saw on the Damascus Road before Saul of Tarsus became the Apostle Paul, and he was on his way to Damascus to bring the Christians of the city to to Jerusalem to stand trial for their faith in Jesus when suddenly there was a light brighter than the sun shining around him and he saw the Lord Jesus, what did he do? He fell to the ground. He fell to the ground and, the, and it says that the men who were with him did not see the person of Jesus but heard only the sound of his voice speaking to the apostle Paul. And Paul reacted in the exact same way as Daniel. He was overwhelmed. He fell to the ground and, and he had no strength left in him. In him. Of course, there are some who try to explain what Paul had experienced as nothing but an epileptic fit. To which uh, English preacher Charles Spurgeon responded this way to that, to that uh, uh, accusation. Oh, blessed epilepsy, he said. Would that every man in London could have epilepsy like that. <laughs> Daniel is the only one who sees this vision in the company that he is in. Yet, there is such a powerful presence around him. Though his friends and those with him do not see anything, they do not hear anything, they are terrified. I mean, have you ever experienced that? Usually for me, when I experience something like that, it's when I'm in a building like this building, all alone at night in the dark. And I hear something and my skin crawls a bit then my mind takes over and before long there's people in the building now trust me this has happened to me before now there i and 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 it's not all for not because there have been times some of you know where there were people in the building and we didn't know it so you always wonder but but it's in those times when i i get freaked out i get terrified And I have to say to myself, literally, okay, Lord, I know that you're more powerful than anything that could be in this building in the dark. I mean, how many of you are scared of the dark? Raise your hand. Yeah, you honest people, I appreciate that. I mean, the other thing that really terrifies me is being in the dark in the middle of the woods in the mountains, imagining what kind of things might be out there. Even if I'm with people... I'm like, you know, what is hanging the food in the tree going to do? Really? They can still smell it and come here. <sighs> These men are terrified. Such terror, it says, overwhelmed them that they fled and hid themselves. But the main reason that many scholars agree that this vision of the glorified Christ that this is a vision of the glorified Christ is because that this vision the prophet Daniel receives when he was an old man is strikingly identical to other visions uh, that have been seen. For John's vision, for instance, in, uh, in Revelation, uh, look up here on the screen, Revelation chapter 1, verses 13 through 15, this is how John describes Jesus. And standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. He was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like polished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. Doesn't that sound like Daniel's vision? Paul, John, Daniel all had the same reaction to this vision of the majestic Christ. Paul fell to the ground, blinded by the intensity of the light surrounding Jesus. The Apostle John writes, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. In verses 8 and 9, Daniel describes how he became weak and collapsed to the ground, landing face downward. I think we could all be assured that if we were to ever come face to face with Jesus Christ, if he were to ever show himself to us in his glory or whatever glory we could withstand as a sinful human being, that we would not stand there and shake his hand. We would respond in the same way as these men did. Oh, the majesty of of Jesus. There was a Sunday morning service in California and there was a man waiting to speak to the pastor of this church. The pastor was John MacArthur. And when the opportunity came, the man shared with with Pastor MacArthur how he often saw the Lord. And, And he had regular visions of him. Jesus talked with him often, he said. Now, for example, he said, Jesus will come and speak to me while I'm shaving. And John MacArthur was a bit skeptical, understandably, and so he said to him, I have just one question. When you see Jesus, do you stop shaving? When the man said no, John MacArthur said, then I seriously seriously doubt that you really saw Jesus, because in the Bible, when God appeared to the prophets and the apostles, it was utterly devastating to them. They collapsed before him like a tree in a hurricane. It was a revelation of the glory of God, and it was always accompanied by a message, a prophetic message. Now, I want us to take a look at the awesome majesty of Jesus together, and and you have space on that front. Again, I wasn't going to spend a lot of time on this. I was going to try and jump through it, and this morning I just felt like, no, I don't want to roll through this. I want us to just... And you may be thinking, oh, we've talked about Jesus before. <laughs> yes, yes, and we will continue to talk about Jesus. His clothing, as Daniel described, speaks of royalty. A white linen robe is a symbol of the purity and holiness of Jesus. And, and in ancient times, only a king would wear a golden sash. Only the, the supreme leader would wear a golden sash. And Jesus is pictured in this way. This, this man that is before Daniel has this golden sash. And, he, and Jesus is pictured as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Think about Jesus in your life. Is he your King of kings? Is he your Lord of lords? When he makes a command to you, do you obey? Do you surrender all things to him as one would to a king in a kingdom? His body, Daniel goes on, is, is, beautif- is, is beautiful beyond description. In, in fact, the NIV, dis- and, and it's the new NIV and the old NIV, actually, I found. So if you have an old NIV, uh, which was, was uh, translated in 1987, I believe it says chrysolite. If you have a new NIV, it uses the word topaz. Uh, the King James uses the word barrel. Why, why do they use different gems? Well, the reason is because the Hebrew word describes a very rare precious stone in that time that only came from one place on earth, which is modern-day Spain, and it was more priceless than diamonds. It was worth more than diamonds. And, and so Daniel is grasping at whatever he can to describe the shimmering, beautiful presence of this man that stands before him. It just means that the overall appearance of the body of Jesus was too beautiful to describe. His face, Daniel says, was radiant. In in 1 John 1.5, it says this, that God is light and there is no darkness in him at all. In Exodus, do you remember this when Moses goes up to the to the mountain to speak with God and he's given the Ten Commandments and and he asks to see God. And, and, and God says, well, okay. But here's how it's going to happen. He, he hides him in this cleft of a rock. And he, and he says that when I go by, you can see the backside of me. But that's it. That's all you could see and survive. And what happens when Moses comes down? What happened to him? He's glowing. His face. He's seen the backside of God. And his face has been changed. He is glowing. What radiance our king has. The eyes of Jesus, Daniel describes, of this man that stands before him are like flaming torches. That is, his eyes can burn right through you. (laughs) Right? Right? You kids, you've ever been before your parents and you know they're seeing right through whatever story it is you're telling them. Right? I mean, it's like they have this, there's bolts of lightning coming out. Fire. They know. This is, this is our Savior, Jesus Christ. His, his eyes are like flaming torches. Um, today, the Lord is looking at you and he is seeing what no one else can see. He's seeing where you've been He's seeing what you've done. He's seeing what you're thinking, contemplating what you will do one day. And here's the amazing thing about this. Jesus, sovereign God, knows all of those things, yet the Bible says what? He still died for you and for me. I just, I I am humbled by that thought. Jesus says, I love you. I died for you. And the crazy thing is, I know you completely. You're not hiding anything from him. Nothing. Nothing. He knows it all, yet he still died for you. He still loves you. You know, we live in a culture today where it doesn't take much anymore to to walk away from a relationship. I mean, really not even any necessarily any legal grounds other than, what do they call it these days? Irreconcilable differences. They might not even use that anymore. I don't know. Jesus knows us to the core, yet we celebrate today what he did for you and for me. If that doesn't make you weak in the knees to truly think about, it does me. His arms are described by Daniel as burnished bronze that speaks of his strength. Reminds me of, of the account where the disciples are with Jesus and all of the parents are bringing their kids to Jesus. You know, they think this is great and they're all clamoring around jesus i i imagine him you know sitting on a rock or something and there's kids crawling all over him and they're grabbing his leg and he's pulling him up onto his lap and he's giving him hugs and maybe he's giving him high fives or fist pumps if that was a thing back then i don't know and the disciples are freaking out like oh man we got so much to do and we got places to go people to see you know kingdoms to change and uh They're like, get get these children out of here. And Jesus is like, no, no, no. And and I just just picture him. And and, and he wasn't a... You know, Jesus wasn't this wimpy guy. He was a carpenter. And in that day, carpenters, I think, were rugged, tough men. Strong. I'm not sure he went to the local gym and worked out on a daily basis, but I envision him with strong arms and just picking those children up and putting them on his lap and holding them. And, And I can't imagine a more comfortable safe feeling place than on the lap and in the arms of Jesus. Right? And as a believer, that's where you are. His arms are burnished bronze. His voice is too loud to ignore. Daniel describes his voice like the sound of a multitude. They didn't have electronic amplification in those days. So if they wanted volume, it was a multitude, right? It was many voices. Or like a, a an amphitheater kind of rock place where Jesus would preach, you know, on the side of a hill uh, or out on the water. A good reason for that was so that his voice would carry lots of people could hear. But the voice of Jesus, this man standing before him, Daniel said, is like the sound of a multitude. Now, I get sometimes God speaks to us in a still small voice, right? I mean, you've heard him in your quiet time some morning, and it, it's just this still small voice, this, this nagging idea or thought that you just won't go away. But there are some times where, where the glorified, exalted voice of the Christ is just too loud, and we can't ignore it. And maybe you've been ignoring it. And and you've just been hearing over Maybe it's something that you've already heard this morning, and you're like, I've heard that. I know I've heard that before, but I just keep hearing it. It's the multitude voice of Jesus. Now think about these things that that Daniel is describing. And I want you to think about the things that Jesus has actually said with his voice that are, that are recorded in Scripture. Jesus made claims that no other person on earth could ever or will ever legitimately make. Could you imagine Socrates or Abraham or even Albert Einstein saying something like, Come unto me, all you who are burdened, and I will give you rest. Right? Right? What about Joseph Smith? He didn't make any promises like that. Muhammad didn't make any promises like that either. In fact, we wouldn't expect them to. But it's completely understandable when Jesus says something like that because we know he can do something about it. He actually can and did. Jesus said this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. You can deny that he said that. You can say that that's not true, but that doesn't change the fact that it is. And one time Jesus even said that he was the I am. Whoa. Wait a minute. The Pharisees had trouble with this. I mean, honestly, let's let's be honest. Let's give the Pharisees a little bit of credit here. If somebody showed up in our neck of the woods in Lingle, Wyoming, and said, I am, what would we think? Initially, we'd be like, this guy's a nut job, right? He thinks he's God. That's where these guys were. Now, we would have to look at the evidence and what Jesus was doing and be willing to say, wow, whoa, ho." Oh my, right? I mean, that's what our responses were. That's what theirs were. They were amazed. And we would be amazed as well and would have to say, you know what? He is who he says he is. He is the son of God. The one who has come to save the world. Now, I want to just mention briefly to whet your appetite a little bit for next week. Look at Daniel chapter 12. I'm sorry. Chapter 10, verse 12. Then he continued, do not be afraid, Daniel. Now, here's here's what I think, and, and this is really the only way that this can happen, that that, that it was Jesus, that it was a theophany of Jesus in the first part of this vision. And now that this, because now, now he's in the presence of an angel because that's how he describes himself, that, that it was two different people because he falls on his face as, and, and into a deep sleep. And then this happens. Do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them did you Do you ever get the feeling that your prayers are just like you're talking to the wall like nobody hears them like because over and over and over again nothing happens, nothing happens, nothing happens. we're going to talk about that next week but but the it says here. That your words were heard and I have come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, another angel, one of the chief princes came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future for the vision concerns a time yet to come. Then skip down to verse 20. So he said, Do you know why I have come to you? Soon I will return to fight against the prince of Persia, and when I go, the prince of Greece will come. But first I will tell you what is written in the book of truth. No one supports me against them except Michael, your prince. The veil has been lifted. He's talking spiritual things here. I mean, these are angels in conflict with demonic forces and demonic angels. And he's letting us see this and the crazy thing is 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 it it's it coincides with what's happening on on the earth right i mean daniel is praying he's he's getting this sense that, that this supernatural sense that there is a spiritual battle going on he's engaging himself in that and then just as he's praying and just as the world is going through this struggle Right? Israel is in captivity by Babylon, carried off into exile. Then Persia takes over. Okay? Then who's next? Greece. And and what this angel is saying is, look, um, I've been fighting against the prince of Persia, and then when I go, what's going to happen? He's going to run into the prince of Greece. Supernaturally, this is angelic stuff. This isn't human stuff, but yet it is human stuff. And, and what we need to recognize and what we're going to focus on next week is the fact that that, that we live, that, that this spiritual realm is coexisting with us. It's real. It's not just some fable thing that we talk about. It's real, and the battle is real. And over and over in Scripture, we see battle language. and 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 we need to answer the question, are we up for the fight? Are we up for the fight? Because truly... Um, some people in our church have been ramping up the prayer efforts and and people are engaging and are committing to praying. People are getting involved in caring for other people. They're sacrificing time. Good things are happening. And do you think the dark world is just going to sit aside and let that happen? No, it's not. Are we ready to fight? And we need to be. And we can be. And we're going to talk about that next week. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 26 up here this morning. Actually, no. Yeah. I jumped ahead. When we pray, when we pray, we're not talking to the wall. We're not talking to the ceiling. We're in conversation with the living God of the universe. And engaging in a spiritual battle that's raging on around us. We are fighting with spiritual weapons. And I want to encourage you this week to focus your thoughts when you're praying and and just consciously recognize that you are engaging in a spiritual battle in your prayers. If you're praying for healing for somebody, there is, uh, could be, a dark force that's wanting to destroy that person's life. If there's a relationship that's being fractured because of some dishonesty or some untruthfulness or some betrayal, what, what influence do you think is behind those negative things that are happening in that, re, in, in that relationship? Now, I'm not saying there's a demon under every rock, okay? I'm not saying that. But the spiritual battle is real in our country. There, there is a prince of Persia, Right? In verse 20, he says, Soon I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go, the prince of Greece will come. And that prince must be full. I wonder if there's a prince of America. I bet there is. I bet there are demonic forces that have been charged with the, the goal of destroying our nation. Of destroying our faith in God. What about a prince of Russia? What about a prince of China? Think about that this week. As you pray this week, don't just think about all of the political people that have screwed up and haven't voted or said things your way and your opinion. What we need to pray for is for the souls of those people. that, That they could be saved from the battle that's raging around them. The battle that they do not see. The battle that we do not see. And we are given spiritual weapons to fight that. And the number one at the top of that is Prayer. It's prayer. Let's engage in the battle this week. Let's pray. In fact, I'm going to close right now. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for for how amazing you are. And Father, I pray that there might be times this week when When we experience your presence to the degree that we are weak in the knees and we fall, maybe even fall on the face, our face in the middle of the living room, recognizing how great you are, how powerful you are, how real you are, how unworthy we are, but how we are worth so much because you gave your life may we experience you more this week. May you transform our minds. Lord Jesus, I'm not asking that everyone in this room would have a vision of you as Daniel did, but that we would all be very much aware of the spiritual battle that's going on in our world, in our life, in our families, and that we would engage the enemy not haphazardly but prepared with the armor of god firmly fit Lord some of our people are are even possibly being sifted and i pray for strength for them i pray for their faith that they would not turn away, that they would hold on, that they would look to you, that they would seek first the kingdom of God and recognize that all these other things, whatever they may be, will be added to them and that they would be content with that, that that we would be content with that. And Lord Jesus, as we now move to, to the communion table and as we celebrate and as we remember the sacrifice that you made for us, Oh, Lord Jesus, in, engage our hearts, engage our minds. In Jesus' name, amen. What we do here is significant. It's not just bread. It's not just juice. It's a physical representation of what Jesus has done for us. we should celebrate with gratitude what Jesus did for us. And, and this act was given to us by Jesus himself. And as a church, we're commissioned to uphold and protect and administer communion. We're told that its purpose in scripture is to remember Christ, to remember his broken body, to remember his shed blood, remember that he did that on a cross on our behalf, that we might be reconciled to God to receive salvation through Christ. So this morning, as we celebrate communion, I want to remind you of these words of Jesus in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 23, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said this. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes let's proclaim it today you see God's got it I don't care what you're experiencing in life God's got it that's what a farmer used to say almost daily on his farm It's been his mantra for as long as he's worked those fields. His his philosophy for farming could be a theology for living. God is God, and God is good, and God has actually got it. That's what he would say every day. God is God, and God is good, and God has actually got it. This is not just a cute catchphrase, but an actual way to habitually remember that there is a king in heaven who holds all things together, even when life stings. When worry, when cancer, when inadequacy, when pain, when drought, when storm, when hail, when wind, that's when he's got it. Always this person telling this story said we repeat it to ourselves on the bad crop years and when the diagnosis comes and when we've gathered in hospice rooms and over hospital beds and in ugly days of wild uncertainty it's true what we say to ourselves and to one another can determine whether we will live imprisoned or free because dark days will come in the world you will have trouble Jesus said did Jesus say take heart for I have overcome the world so we tell it to each other over and over and over again God's got it it's why we return to the table of grace with the cup and the loaf we return and remember and receive and repent and repeat God's got it He's actually and miraculously overcome the world. We believe this, that Jesus was born of the Holy Spirit, that he came to the earth and that he died on a cross, and that when Saint was laughing and the disciples were running scared, God actually and miraculously still had it. That Jesus was wrapped in a cloth and buried in a tomb, and a stone was rolled into place, and when his followers grieved and saw nothing but darkness, God still had it. Then on the third day, in opposition to the laws of nature, Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven because, please hear me here, God most assuredly had it. And we believe that our King is seated at the right hand of the Father because it's true. Our God has completely, still completely, and mercifully got it. Even in the middle of our worst days, we may watch a bad situation turn into an impossible situation. Some of it will defy logic. From time to time, God will let us in on the reasons why. Sometimes He won't. But I can tell you this, as a child of His, you can know this morning you can celebrate today that he has got it let's remember that his shed blood his broken body we celebrate that this morning we remember that it doesn't matter what's against us that he has overcome the world and if he is your king, if he is your Lord this morning, it doesn't matter if you're a member of North Hills, it, it, church isn't important. What's important is the truth of Jesus Christ in your life. Lord Jesus, as the servers come and we get ready to partake of this, thank you. <laughs> thank you that someone so great, so amazing, so beautiful, so radiant and loud and strong and indescribable would do something on our behalf that was so painful and and dark and lonely. But Lord, you rose above that. You conquered death and you conquered sin. Thank you. We celebrate this morning. We remember in Jesus' name. Amen. As the basket comes by, Take a piece of bread as the plate comes by. Take a cup. And when you're ready, eat the bread remembering that Jesus surrendered his life to be broken for you. And as you drink the cup, remember that Jesus shed not just a drop, not just a liter, but all of his blood on your behalf celebrate together.